Before we get into our lesson this afternoon, I want to first of all tell the brethren here, all of the brethren, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come and hold this gospel meeting. And we pray that the word has been planted in good soil here and that uh, it will bring forth fruit to God's glory in the hearts and minds of men. You know, the, uh, the problem is not the seed of the kingdom, Luke 8 and 11, which is the word of God. The problem with the evangelism in our culture is the kind of soils that we have, the kind of hearts that the seed gets into. So let's pray that hearts will be softened and the the soil of people's minds will allow the reception of the seed of the kingdom and that good can come from it and that the cares and concerns of this light won't grow up and choke out the seed and bring fruit, uh, any fruit to glory. So let's continue to pray for the good, but thank you for the opportunity and thank you for all those who've had me over for meals this week and uh, endured our company, I, I would say it that way. And Anyway, we've really been uh, uh, thankful, and it's been a joy to be here. Tonight, I want to appreciate our brother, which led the song that uh, just before we got up to sing, uh, just before I got up to preach, Stand Up for Jesus. It's using a military analogy to talk about our Christian service. Paul often used military analogies in the scriptures to talk about Christian service. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, he tells us that we're, to, as soldiers uh, of the cross of Christ, we're to equip ourselves with certain kinds of equipment. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. There's a whole description of a soldier in that passage. And on other occasions, which we're going to notice uh, and a little bit later, in Timothy, as well as others, they use the analogy of fighting the good fight of faith. Indeed, we do and are engaged in a war for truth and for God in this culture. And we need, we need to uh, fight the good fight in a proper way this evening. We've entitled our, our topic, Friendly Fire. Uh, this article I wrote uh, back earlier in the spring. And uh, this afternoon, I thought I might be weary in my mind, and so I wanted to stick with uh, uh, something that I had written out. So uh, we hope that this little talk will be helpful to us in some way. You know, whenever we talk about going into war, I'll say this before we start reading, or or, uh, going through our outline this afternoon. Just because somebody goes into war does not mean that they can behave in any way possible. We know all of us are familiar, I hope, with the Nuremberg trials of, of World War II, where there, be under the auspices or under the umbrella of war, people behaved despicably toward people who were under their charge or put into prison. They did experiments on them just because they were prisoners, and, and that's horrible. And we call uh, the Nuremberg trials are an evidence of war crimes that... People committed it against other people. But they, they try to justify it. They say, well, in war, people do weird things. They, they kill, and that's not normal, and, and all this other stuff. My friends, there's something, there's something uh, uh, people, when people go to war, we recognize that it's a war for power and to show strength and, and want to overcome in whatever way. But it is never justification for wicked, pure evil 
people to come out and for people to justify that. So that's why there is such a thing as war crimes, if you will, in in our world. We know that it's wrong to experiment with prisoners put in our care. We even have some of that uh, lately. There's been people talking about the prisoners down in Cuba and how they're treated and whether they're treated at least in some type of humane fashion and other things like this. Well, so it comes to spiritual warfare as well. We know that there are people who disagreed with Jesus and the apostles, the scribes and the Pharisees. But my friends, they may have deceived themselves into thinking, because we think we're right, anything we do is all right, even if we create false witnesses to testify against these people. And we know that that's wrong. We know that that's immoral and wicked and evil to create false witnesses or to tell half-truths in order to, to get somebody silenced. But so it is in the spiritual war. Those sometimes who cannot win on the debate field, they turn to attacking character and they do things that God considers to be evil. We cannot justify evil in our war. We can't say, can we do evil that good may come? We've got to fight the good fight spiritually in in a proper way, according to the scriptures. And that's really what led to this, uh, if you will, this article that I want to talk about a little bit. Friendly fire. It was disheartening news uh, to hear Pat Tillman, age 27, was killed April 22, 2004, while leading a team of army rangers up a remote south, southeastern Afghanistan hill to knock out enemy fire. Well, who is Pat Tillman? Well, Pat Tillman was a professional football player for the National Football Association, uh, the Cardinals, uh, the Ari- in Arizona. It's hard for me to say our Cardinals in Arizona in the same breath, but... That's where they are. He became a patriarch icon to many in the world by giving up his $3.6 million contract as a starting safety for the Cardinals to become an Army Ranger following the September 11th attacks. The month after Pat Tillman's death, though, the Arizona Republic reported some even more demoralizing news. The newspaper read, Pat Tillman likely was killed by friendly fire, an Army investigation concluded. Now, what is friendly fire? Well, throughout history, in the heat and confusion of battle, soldiers have often attacked their own troops, thinking they were engaging the enemy. These misguided attacks are called enemy fire, or excuse me, friendly fire. History has shown that whenever there is conflict, there is friendly fire. In U.S. history, one of the most noted examples of friendly fire is Stonewall Jackson, who was killed during the Civil War. May 10th and 1863. It was interesting reading, if you're, if you're a student of the Civil War, it was interesting about his death. He was literally being a scout and was shot by his own men, and he didn't die immediately. He, t- he died about 10 days later from wounds that he suffered by being shot by one of his own men. It is speculated that his death changed the outcome of the Civil War. Friendly fire can happen to leaders, or, as, or uh, any young soldier just making mistakes sometimes. Anyone can become a victim of friendly fire. In Vietnam, it was estimated that close to 60, uh, or six, excuse me, 6,000 were killed or wounded by friendly fire. Some of it unintentional, and unfortunately, according to some of the stories that came back, some of it intentional even. 
And that's really sad whenever you think about it. Well, the Bible records incidents of friendly fire too. This isn't just a phenomenon uh, that's only in worldly history. The Bible talks about friendly fire too. Notice in Gideon's example, in Judges, the seventh chapter in verse 12, the Midianites and a number of allies, which as the Bible says, were together as numerous as the locusts, encamped against the children of Israel. When Gideon and the 300 with him broke their pitchers under which were torches and cried out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon and blew the trumpets, the Bible says in Judges 7 and verse 22 that the Lord set every man's sword against his companion, against his companion throughout the whole camp. The Midianites in their fear and confusion attacked and destroyed themselves, and they lost this battle through friendly fire. The Lord showed his power through getting them to destroy themselves. Regrettably, this same phenomenon is also found in spiritual warfare, too. Sometimes Christians become confused and believe they're battling an enemy, when in reality, they're fighting those who are on the same side. Paul gave the church at Galatia a warning about spiritual friendly fire in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Now, in Galatians, the fifth chapter, which if, you do a great, if you're doing chapter studies, you know Galatians takes a lot of time to get through because it's crammed, packed with information. But notice what he says here in Galatians, the fifth chapter, in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, literally, you destroy one another. You consume one another. And so he says, beware, but if you bite and devour one another. Notice he precedes this by one of the greatest ideas in the scriptures. He says, for the law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, basically, he's saying, here's the principle that I want you to live by in your way, the way that you relate to one another. Treat one another like you'd like to be treated and beware the way you treat one another. You might bite and devour one another and consume one another. This warning was to the church at Galatia. And it's interesting if you study the Galatian letter, be very aware through the book that he's dealing quite upfront, quite abruptly with false teachers. He's dealing with those who are trying to bind circumcision in the church. In fact, he, tell, he, he says in that passage, I wish that those who were troubling you would even cut themselves off. I mean, he's using some pretty straightforward language about these false teachers. And so don't give me the idea that Paul's just one of these mimby-mamby, love-only, good-feeling, better-than-anything-else kind of guys. You don't say that about the Apostle Paul, not when he's dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with them very sternly and straightforwardly in the book of Galatians. And yet it is that very Apostle Paul who is dealing with these false teachers that warns the church at Galatia. Now listen, guys. Listen. Be careful who you attack. Be careful who you're dealing with and how you deal with them. Be careful lest you bite and devour one another. We may inadvertently pick up and sing, swing our spiritual sword at anybody who challenges us. And over time, we may even develop a perspective that anyone who disagrees with us is an enemy or a spy for the enemy, Galatians 2.4. We develop this conviction, listen very carefully to this, we develop this conviction because we sincerely believe we're on the Lord's side 
and know the truth. Therefore, anyone who is not on our side must be an enemy of God and not know the truth. Since we're on the Lord's side, they must be off. And because of that, we develop attitudes that go along with that. Well, my friends, that's not the, that's not the way we should be. We should always be humble when we're handling the Word of God, unless we're inspired or Jesus himself. Now, Jesus had authority to speak for God, but he always had a compassionate spirit. He knew what was in the minds and hearts of men. And to those who were humble and receptive, those who were loving, those, there was even a young man who came to Jesus, and the Bible says he loved him because he saw that this man was a, 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 a man who had tried to have his priorities right, but yet he loved money more than he loved the Lord. And he went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. Jesus knew the hearts of those. And yet when he encountered a hypocrite, he knew that the, the type of correction a hypocrite needed was rebuke. He knew that. You know, this, this principle of, of uh, showing or talking to different people who have different kinds of problems is found in the scriptures. If you want, if you want to please turn, I don't want to get too far away from my notes, but if you want to go to 1 Thessalonians, notice in 1 Thessalonians, in verse, uh, chapter 5 and verse 14, especially for those of you who are our leaders uh, and, and want to be elders in the future, listen very carefully to this. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See to it that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now, he doesn't say, admonish the, admonish the faint-hearted, admonish the weak, and be patient with everyone. No, he says, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted help the weak. In other words, there may be a sin problem in somebody's life, but it may be because they're rebellious. If they're rebellious, admonish them. They may be sin problems in their life because they're weak. When they're weak, you need to encourage them. There may be a sin problem in their life because they need help. Help them. Help them. You see, you have to have enough wisdom to know how to handle the problems for sin in everybody's life. And that is something the Bible teaches us to have. Why is this verse in here? If we're not supposed to learn from it in the way we relate to one another. It has application. We're supposed to learn, to discern what's causing these problems as best as possible. And so in our lives, we need to learn how to, the difference between encouragement and helping and admonishment. Those who are unruly, those who are disrespectful to God, you have to warn them of their ways. You know, there was a man who wrote me uh, 50 questions, he called it, 50 questions about why he believed that we were wrong. And it took me about a month to answer his 50 questions because some of those 50 questions were more than 50 questions. In fact, when I added them all up, there were close to 90 questions, you know. And we were in Australia at the time, and he wanted me to answer these questions. Well, some of them were insightful. Some of them showed a real lack of, in, of, of knowledge of the Word of God. And I had to write, and I had to write, and continue to write. And then I got to one question where he was profane. And I warned him in his letter. I said, listen, buddy, you better be careful. 
You are profaning God here. And this is a real concern I have. This is not a question. This is making fun of God. And you need to be really careful to not profane God here and not profane his word. You better step back and you better make sure that you're asking this question with proper motives and proper attitude. Or because this is a real concern here. You know what he told me later on? This young man was converted in one of the leaders of the church, by the way, in Armadale, uh, Western Australia. You know what happened later on? He told me what happened whenever he read my response to his questions. He said he was reading along in my little epistle of 22 pages. <laughs> he was reading along and he said he got to that point and where I warned him about profaning God and he said it hit him like a ton of bricks that his attitude wasn't right in his search for the truth. And he stopped, laid the paper down, prayed, and started at page one again. And when he started at page one again, he said, "My." he read it, he later was converted, and like I said, he's a leader. Now, my friends, that happens because of a change of heart. Change of heart. And that's what I'm talking about here. Whenever we go to some brother or sister or whenever we're dealing with those in error, we have to make sure our heart is right and we have to make sure that their heart is right as well. We have to try to work with the hearts and the minds of those whom we study with. You can't handle everybody with the same thing. You've got to learn to do differently and attack things in a different way. And so whenever we talk about going off on somebody or just believing that everybody who doesn't agree with us is ignorant. It's our attitude problem. We need to check our heart whenever we go to those people in the world. In the book of Galatians, Bible tells us in Galatians 6, notice, to make sure of our attitude. In Galatians 6, starting read verse 1 and verse uh, 2, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And we all want to go, oh, that's me. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. I'll go help him see the truth. But notice the rest of the verse. It says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one is to looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Oh, he turns it on us. He said, listen, if you're the spiritual one going to correct somebody, I want you, who are spiritual, to consider yourself. Look to yourself. Make sure your attitude is right when you approach one another with these problems. Make sure. Examine yourself. The Lord teaches us to be humble in our handling of the word. It's not us that they have a problem with. It's God. Make sure they understand this is an issue with God, not with you. Get yourself out of the way. Let them see that you're there, not trying to win an argument with you, but their argument is with God. Let them read it from the Word of God. Let them read it from the Word, not just your opinion. You know, so many times whenever I'm correcting someone, I'll have them read the passage out of the Word and ask them, what does that mean to you and to me? To make them understand that this isn't a problem with you, that you're not trying to come there to just blow out their candle or somehow insult them or make yourself feel better. You don't want them to see you. Well, you want them to deal with the writer and the author of the book. You want them to deal with God. So let them read it out of the word. Let them read it from the scriptures. And then say, we need to help each other to be successful in our Christian endeavor. God tells us to check our attitudes whenever we go to one another. The Bible undeniably tells us to examine everything carefully, 1 Thessalonians 
But when doing this, we must work at objectivity. Objectivity is not, is not just reacting defensively. Objectivity means to really listen to what the other person has to say. As an example of objectivity, we might think of the Bereans, who were more noble or fair-minded than those at Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Acts 17, verse 10 and 12. In order to help us maintain our intellectual integrity, God demands that we love the truth. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10. Not just automatically defend our positions. To love the truth means that we want the truth, even if it costs us the embarrassment of being found wrong. Now, whenever somebody loves the truth more than they love themselves, they will want the truth no matter what it costs themselves. And that's what we want. We want to love the truth. The truth. I just want to know the truth, even if it means I'm wrong. You know, whenever you start to study with somebody, it's really good to do that, to say with somebody, you know, if you believe Jesus Christ is Son of God, and I believe Jesus Christ is Son of God, and Jesus Christ came and brought the truth to us, Let's find out what the truth is on this issue together. You know, maybe you're wrong, maybe I'm wrong, maybe we're both wrong, but we both can't be right. And you know what? Whenever, you, whenever somebody sees that you're honest and objective about an issue, they are far more willing to sit down and see what you have to, what you have to share with them. They're far more open because you're just telling them, here's some of the evidence I found. What does this say to you? Have you found some other things? And listen to what they have to say. And then look at whatever it is in truth. Well, Paul, Paul told, uh, asked the Galatians church a question. In Galatians 4 and verse 16, remember this is the same one that he's just been talking to. He says, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, why did Paul say that? Why did Paul say that? Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? If I was in the church at Galatia and I I read that in the scriptures, I would ask myself, what's my attitude in hearing this letter read? When Paul says, have I become your enemy? If, if, If Frankie or Terry or somebody was to come up to me and say, Glenn, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? It would make me stop and I'd have to go, hmm, I wonder how I feel about you telling me this, you know. What Paul was trying to do with the church at Galatia was get them to check their objectivity. That was his whole point. He says, oh, you always get mad when somebody corrects you because you think you're doing it right or you wouldn't have done it that way. Unless you subconsciously feel you're guilty anyway, you know. But Paul says, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? What he was trying to do was get them to stop and to think about what he had said. And to reflect on the teachings in the scriptures. So he was trying to say something that would stimulate their objectivity. Paul knew that their defensive way of thinking would lead them to feel that he was their enemy. But was Paul really an enemy? No. He was just trying to, a brother, trying to keep them from error. But their lack of humility and objectivity would lead them to view Paul as an enemy. And so Paul endured in his lifetime quite a bit of friendly fire from his own brethren. Some were afraid of Paul because of his previous reputation. In Acts 9 and verse 26, this is the guy that used to kill Christians. Are you sure we can trust him? Look what he used to stand for. Paul got shot a lot of times. And he may have had in his audience even the relatives of some that Paul helped contribute to their death. 
And these brethren may have had, I mean, the, the, it was easy to hold grudges back then. And Paul said, listen, I've come here, I'm, t- I'm telling you, the reason why I'm standing with you is because of God's grace and God's mercy. Paul said, because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Some were afraid of Paul because of his reputation, but not all of Paul's problems were because of paranoia. Some attacked Paul because they were jealous and envious. In Philippians 1, 15 through 17, Paul warns us not to become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 5, 26. In any field of endeavor that's an intellectual endeavor, or well as a physical endeavor. There is competition. And sometimes that competition involves pride and worldly motives, no matter who it might be. And such can happen even in the church, that's sad to say. And these motives are still around today and can bring about friendly fire. Well, in the heat of spiritual warfare, in order to keep ourselves from engaging in friendly fire, we need to recognize some rules for engagement. First, get our facts straight. Let's not base our assault on gossip, hearsay, rumor, question motives, or anything like that. In Matthew 18 and 15, it says if somebody uh, sin, take him unto them, like Apollos and others. Let, let it be between you and them and find out you know, exactly what they believe. You know, treat them like you'd like to be treated. What if somebody thought, listen, men, what if somebody thought you committed adultery? They saw you walking out of a store or out of some situation one time. I remember Charles Everett talking to me uh, a long time ago about being a UPS man and having to deliver a package to a bar. And he said, Glenn, it concerns me because, you know, I deliver a package to a bar. Somebody might think that I'm in there drinking. I said, no, nobody thinks that. A delivery guy, you got your UPS outfit on? Who would think that? And he said, Glenn, you don't know some of my brethren. I went, oh, you know, that's pretty bad. If people want to take pot shots at you, they'll be willing to grab at anything. And that's really sad. That's really sad. When somebody who wears a uniform like that and goes in delivery still has to worry about their, their reputation. Well, my friends, that's not, that's not kind, and that's not loving, and that's not the way we should be in our working with one another. You know, I shouldn't be worried by talking to another woman on a street uh, corner on the sidewalk in plain sight, talking to someone, having somebody worry about whether I'm committing adultery or not. Because that kind of mind finds no good. And the Bible says a crooked mind is the thing that finds no good. Sometimes, you know, it's not, it's not really wrong for us to communicate with people. But some people will always put the wrong spin and wrong view on those kinds of things. So, Before you listen to gossip and everything, check it out. Make sure that before you spread it around that this person's committing adultery or that person believes this, that, or the other, that we check it out first before we go on. An Old Testament example of what can happen if we don't check things out is found in Joshua, the 22nd chapter. This is interesting. In Joshua, the 22nd chapter, we have a really interesting event given to us. We find that Joshua, who was a great commander and general, if he's called a general of the children of Israel, has, has conquered the land of Canaan, caught, divided up all uh, the lands with everybody, and now, now, now notice what's happened. 
Verse 3, he said to them, well, verse 2, let's start Joshua 22, verse 2. And he said to him, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice and all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, and have kept the charge of the commandments of the Lord your God. And now... And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now, go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandments and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and love the Lord with all your God, God, uh, with love your Lord, your God, and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse six. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now, what's going on? You might not have known this point in history. We've all the children of Israel have been fighting in the, to get the promised land to be their possession. Now the wars are done. They've conquered the lands. Moses divided it up into the different possessions to the different tribes. And now Joshua gets them all together and says, the war's over, go home. Go back to the lands now. It's done. Go back and possess your lands. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away. But what happened was, is in the land, there's the Jordan River. I don't want to give all this, but over here were several tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We're going to notice that in a minute. The other tribes had gotten all their land over here. There, we'll just let that. <laughs> they had gotten all their land. But now what happened? <coughs> Reading verse 10. And they came to the region of Jordan, which is the land of Canaan. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gab, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan. In other words, on this side of the river, they built an altar on the other side of the Jordan River. And it, notice what, what it was for. Uh, and a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard about it, saying, Behold, the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. He says, They're building an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel heard of it. Verse 12, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. In other words, Joshua had just told everybody, go to your lands, remember the Lord. These guys were over here building an altar. The real altar has been down here. And as if you'll read on Joshua 22, the last of it, they, he said, this, this, there was only one altar and they were building another one on the frontier. How wrong of them to do that. Notice. <clears throat> so, what happened? Well, they came and they got, we don't have time to go all into it, but notice, they got all the people together and they had the tribes of these people and the ten chiefs, verse 14, if you're making note, the ten chiefs of each of the tribe of Israel, each one of them was head of his father's household and they came to the sons of Reuben, 15. They went to them. And it says, and to the sons of Gad, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, and spoke with them, saying, Thus the whole congregation, or what is this unfaithful act which you have committed? Verse 16. What right do you have to build this, this, uh, this tabernacle to the Lord? To, and notice they were, they, they were absolutely right. What right did they have to, to do that? Well, at this meeting, notice the response that they gave to them. <clears throat> Going on down, verse 21. Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Mazi answered and spoke to the heads of the family of Israel. The mighty one, the God, the Lord, the mighty God, the Lord, he knows that may Israel itself know. If this was a rebellion or any unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. In other words, here's what we're going to say. We built this. There's no doubt about it. 
If we're unfaithful, destroy us. But, notice verse 23, if we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or to burn a burnt offering or grain offering on it, or to offer any sacrifice of Peter's offering on it, may the Lord himself require it. In other words, we want the Lord to chastise us, to destroy us. Verse 24, but truly we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan, notice verse 25, the Jordan, a border between us and you, you sons of Reuben, you sons of Gad, you have no portion with the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness. It shall be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we are to perform the services of the Lord before him with our burnt offering and with our sacrifices and with our peace offering, so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. In other words, he wanted these people to recognize, here is an exact replica of what's in Jerusalem. What's the connection? Oh, these people are the people of God too. And he says, we want to remind everybody, the Jordan's not a border. The Jordan is not a border. We are children of God as well. Well, what happened after this research had been done? Well, <clears throat> going on down, the, the, and Phineas, all these people, notice that, uh, that they... <clears throat> verse 30. And when Phinehas, the priest, and leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the family who were with him, heard the words which the son of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, said to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord, and you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And he goes on down and it says, and they withdrew, and uh, they said, that's fine, everything's fine, you know. That's what needs to happen in church problems today as well. We sometimes need to identify people to go talk to these people who have been accused of things and double check it out, check it out, and make sure that they're not, after these people, they found out what was going on. They said it was pleasing and they, weren't, they weren't, didn't bring it up anymore. It, uh, the Bible warns us in Proverbs eighteen thirteen: he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. So, Check it out before you accuse someone. That'll keep you from friendly fire. Check it out. Secondly, we must remain objective. Remember when listening to others, the first to plead his case seem right until another comes and examines him. Proverbs 18 and verse 17. Let's not allow others to whip us into some emotional form of mob mentality before we check things out. Proverbs 17, 4 says, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar pays attention to destructive tongue. That's a sin in listening. It says an evil an evildoer listens to wicked lips. So some, there are some things that we just shouldn't listen to. We should check it out. When you hear it, check it out. Notice Paul identifies in the scriptures who his uh, who the accusers were of of the Corinthians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians one and verse eleven, "I've heard from Chloe's people that you guys aren't unified." You know. If we would do all that, whenever we talk to each other, it would really send a message to talebearers that they're going to be held accountable for what they share. When you go to someone and you say, somebody's gossiping, just tell the gossip that you're going to, tell, you're going to share with them who it is that shared that with you. That's what Paul gives us an example of doing. He said, I heard this from Chloe's people. Now, if Chloe's people were wrong, then Chloe's people had to answer. 
You see, that's the whole point. And so it's not wrong to have news, but it is wrong to sometimes want to share things without accountability. Third, we must be able to recognize the enemy. And what I mean by that is we must be able uh, or familiar before we, uh, before we attack somebody, just because we don't know them, does it, just because they're of a foreign land, you have a different, if you will, uh, maybe uh, songbook than we have or a different translation that we have, doesn't mean that they don't know the Lord. You know, if we find a brother, we found congregations in Nebraska worshiping in spirit and truth. And, I, and there, with all of my heart, I believe that there are people worshiping in spirit and truth in some place in China. You know, because the word of God is there. And if people use the pure word of the seed of the kingdom, the only fruit that can come from that is pure Christianity. It's bound to be there somewhere. And that's, that's what we mean. We need to make sure before we just attack anybody who I don't know, we better need to check it out. Ask them what they believe. Ask them why they believe it. Fourthly, we must not engage in childing sibling rivalry in the church. This leads to civil war. I want to say... When I, when I do this, you know, I wonder where all the young people were that, that I grew up with in the church. But I found out where a lot of them went. I've talked to a lot of them. And you know what? These, they, they, they tell you to me often, you know, I'll tell you why I don't come there anymore. The brethren are all critical of everybody, you know. And one, one young brother said the quickest way to lose the next generation is criticize and belittle everyone in the church. Have nothing good to say about anybody in the church, and then that young person will grow up respecting no one in the church. Yeah, I know that person. He's got these faults. I know that person. They've got those faults. And everybody has faults. There's no reason why I should listen to any of them. And so they don't listen to anybody because all, uh, on the way home, everybody's just been criticized all the time. When these children of these critics grow up, they will likely have little respect for anyone in the church. They'll not want to try anything in the service of the Lord, knowing that they'll be made fun of and scrutinized by those brethren who have constantly made fun of other brethren. This is friendly fire and needs to stop. So is that what you do? You don't do much. And one of the reasons why you don't do much is because you criticize so many people all the time and you don't want that same criticism for yourself. So the best way to stay out of criticism is just let somebody else do it and then make fun of them. Make fun of them. So that's a shame. That's, why should we fear friendly fire more than we fear enemy fire? We've got some brethren are more afraid of their own brethren than they are the enemy of the cross of Christ. Brethren... Let's not do that. Let's support one another. Let's care about one another. If somebody's wrong, be concerned about them and show your love and concern for them. And then let your children imitate that loving concern as well. Rather than being a participant in friendly fire or being victimized by it, let's choose the high road. The scriptures teach that we should treat one another with honor and respect. Romans 12.10. Read all of Romans 12, by the way, and understand it. Don't misinterpret. Romans 12 is not endorsing false doctrine. No. It's just talking about differences of opinion and different things like that. Notice, the Bible says, love one another, forgive one another, regard one another as more important than ourselves, admonish one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, submit to one another, encourage one another. Even when a brother is wrong, we, should, we do not have the option of suspending these attitudes that the Bible demands that we have. We cannot use a brother's air to justify hatred or malice and continue to remain objective. You know, one, I heard one time of an incident 
where somebody got up and uh, just started uh, making fun of what somebody else believed. And by the way, whenever you talk against false doctrine, deal with the issues and not the people who believe them. Deal with the, the, what you're discussing and don't make fun of the people who believe that. And finally, someone got so mad they left and the preacher said, well, I was wondering how long it was going to take before they left. Well, my friends, that's nothing to be proud of. That's nothing to be proud of. The Lord didn't do that. He addressed the issues. So, in our effort to avoid friendly fire, brother, let me just summarize it in this. We cannot, must not stop the war. I've heard some brethren get up and say, the only way to avoid friendly fire is not ever fight. That is not what God says. We must address false ideas and false doctrine. If the person who says that needs to read the book of Galatians again. As I said, Paul is dealing very strictly with false doctrine in that book. And it's in that book that he says, don't bite and devour one another. He knew how to balance it. And so we cannot, we must not stop the war. However, we must be able to develop the ability to discriminate between friend and foe. We absolutely must continue to fight the good fight, 1 Timothy 6.12, but we must be careful as to whom we put into our crosshairs. We must make sure we're fighting the enemy and not just demoralizing, uh, demonizing, excuse me, an ally of Jesus to other brethren because he disagrees with our opinion. We should want to be able to say, as Paul did, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith without the regret of having committed acts of friendly fire. Remember, and I want to leave you with this one idea. Remember, Jesus taught, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Matthew 25, verse 40. In the day of judgment, we don't want to be found guilty of friendly fire, for we would be found guilty of fighting against God. Acts 5, 36. We will give an answer to the chief commander for those whom we've engaged in battle and how we fought. We need to pray that our battles with our true enemies of God and not cases of friendly fire. The warning remains. I want to say one last thing here. One of the things that I've always tried to do in my life is I've always tried to treat my kids with love and respect. And I've always watched how their friends treat my kids. I've always watched how others treat my kids, don't you? We all look at how we treat our kids, how, how others treat our kids. And, we, and, and, you know, we get concerned whenever people treat our kids in an in a unrespectful way. We get concerned. We'll say, you know, that's not a good friend for you to have. They don't treat you right. And if our kids are dating, we even get more concerned. <laughs> you know, if that young man or that young woman doesn't treat, you know, our son or our daughter with respect, we kind of go, you know, I was just cleaning my gun the other day. <laughs> no, we, just, we, don't, we don't usually say that, but, but we want to let, <laughs> let the people know. Now look, if you don't treat them with respect, you're going to be dealing with me, right? Our Father in Heaven feels the same way. He says, listen, these are all my children. I don't like you guys fighting amongst yourself, and I don't like you treating each other in a bad way. I try never to treat somebody else in a way where I will have to answer to their father. That has always been a good way, a good measure, 
to make sure I keep my attitude in check. I may be angry. I may even be really upset with a person because of the way they behaved. But I always treat someone like I'm going to have to answer to their father. And that always kept me in check. Is that a good principle and is that a good rule to use whenever we're dealing with others? Let's remember that they have a father and we are going to give an account to their father one day as to how we treat them. Jesus, if he loved them, he says, if you did it unto the one least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. In other words, we're going to have to answer for how we treat one another. So even if they're wrong, even if they're hypocrites, even if they are enemies of the cross of Christ, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let us, even if we have to suffer for the cause of Christ, let us treat one another like we'd like to be treated, like we'd like our children to be treated, and let's all treat each other like we're going to have to answer to their father. That's a real helpful way of making sure we keep our, answer, our attitudes in check whenever we work with one another. Brethren, there are some issues coming up in the church that everybody's going to have to deal with. Every generation has to deal with what we call, uh, oftentimes offhandedly, liberalism. And we have to always deal, every, as, as all the preachers have said in their writings, we're always one generation away from apostasy. We always are. We have to fight the good fight in every generation. We have to come back to the authority word every generation. The, what we read about happening uh, years ago is happening again. <laughs> the same issues, they just can't come up time and time again, and we have to fight it, and we have to put names and faces oftentimes to new doctrines. But we have to learn how to deal with it in a Christian way because we don't want to be found guilty of fighting and devouring one another. So, Take up the sword. Fight the good fight of faith, but be careful how we fight. Be careful how we correct one another. Consider yourself. Handle the word with humility. Make sure that what we do is out of genuine love for the other person and not defending our own pride or the fact that we've been disrespected or the fact that we don't handle it that way. Don't have, that's an easily fleshly way to handle that. But like we talked about parenting the other night, make sure our correction is for their welfare. And when we do that, we'll keep ourselves in check. We'll keep ourselves from abusing our children. Whenever we correct our children for our welfare rather than for theirs, it's wrong. And that's sometimes the way it is whenever it comes to doctrines too. Don't just tell somebody off because you feel like you need to tell them off. If you're doing that, you're not letting your speech be grace, be seasoned where it was salt, and let it be edifying for the good of the moment. There is so much more we could teach. But my friends, let's act wisely in our handling the word of God. Let's handle accurately. But most of all, let's not give the opposition an opportunity to disrespect God or to show that we are spiritually immature and not from our Father which is in heaven. Let's not commit to act of friendly fire. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. 
Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.